You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. In case you're visiting with us, we're looking at six markers that give witness to the journey of faith that God calls the Israelites along as he redeems them. And we see the story in the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus. Our marker this morning is a staff to invite. There is a condition that is worse than any of the ten plagues that were inflicted upon the Egyptians in ancient times. And it's the only one of these conditions that still exists today. Our text points us both to the condition and to its treatment. And as such, we see that Jesus Christ is not only our Lord and Savior, but he is also the great physician. And he is also the good shepherd. Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7? Our text is Exodus 7, verses 8 through 13, which you find on page 47 of the, the Pew Bible. You make use of those. And if you're able, let's stand together and read God's word aloud. Exodus 7, verses 8 through 13. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerer, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. This particular text we just read is um, only a piece of two uh, larger narratives that fit together and they, they overlap. And, and these two narratives share something in common, and it is our marker for the morning. That is a staff, a wooden shepherd's rod or walking stick. It's a piece of wood to guide you and to steady you on life's travels. And yet this particular piece of wood takes on a very different significance in the life of two men, the subjects of these two overlapping narratives. For one, the staff will suggest something to know. For another, the staff will suggest a way to go. And you and I have an opportunity to decide what it will mean to us. First, something to know. And here, I want to return to the place where I began, where we looked and we talked about this condition. It's worse than these nine plagues. It's a condition that the Bible calls hardness of heart. Hardness of heart occurs first here in the Exodus narrative, but not only here. 
Uh, We heard it read for us in the call to worship. It is an affliction that struck the Israelites in the wilderness, hardness of heart. It's an affliction that Jesus observed in his disciples during his earthly ministry, hardness of heart. It is an affliction that occurs within the early church, we read in Hebrews 3 and 4. Their hardness of heart as well. And I would suggest to you, as I thought about this, that hardness of heart is related to doubt, but it's not so much too much doubt. It's more the problem of, you could say, not enough doubt. Let me explain that in in a moment. Let me first define hardness of heart. My definition is really simple. It's, It's a resistance to the positive influence of God in your life. Hardness of heart is that internal, willful resistance to the positive influence of God in your life. And there are three words, actually, that throughout the Exodus narrative that are all translated variously, hardness of heart or a hardened one's heart. And they give us good word pictures of this condition. The first word is to be heavy, a heart that's heavy, it's a hard heart. It's so heavy that it has a kind of inertia. See, it's, it's sluggish. It's the way I feel when the alarm clock rings in the early morning, right? Just a heavy heart. It resists God's positive influence. And the second word is also to be literally translated to be strong, which is interesting because that sounds like a positive thing, and it oftentimes is. Joshua's heart was to be strong, God said, and yet sometimes our hearts are strong, not with God, but strong with ourselves. And if the first word suggests that our heart can be too sluggish, this one suggests that our heart can be sometimes too resolved, too fixed in its way, too determined to welcome the positive influence of God in our lives. And the third word is to be stiff. To be stiff. Oftentimes this word is used of, uh, of animals, uh, a stiff-necked animal you've read before. You know, a stiff-necked horse would be a horse that uh, cannot be neck-reined because its, its uh, neck is so insensitive to the cues of its master that it's stubborn. And so these two words, uh, suggesting that we could be too sluggish or too resolved, too stubborn or insensitive, are all... Uh, what the Bible considers hardness of heart. And it's interesting to me how this occurs. This particular overlapping story uh, fascinates me because here we have Pharaoh wrestling, it seems to me, with doubt. Pharaoh is faced with an extraordinary claim that Moses has made. I mean, who's Moses? He's this Hebrew slave who's come into my palace. I don't even know how he got an appointment. You know, some kind of uh, network he's got. He's related to some ancestor pharaoh of mine's princess. And uh, so I, I, I agreed to meet with him for five minutes. But he comes with this audacious claim that there is a God who is the supreme God. There is a God who wants me to know him. There is a God who wants to bless me and my people. Well, who could believe that? Prove it. Now, God in sending Moses on this errand had anticipated just such a challenge from Pharaoh. 
God had said to Moses that when you, when you and Aaron come into the Pharaoh's court, he's going to ask you to perform a wonder. Some kind of credential, some kind of authenticating sign so that he knows you're the real deal. And, of course, uh, won't surprise Moses by now to hear that that is the challenge from Pharaoh. And so Moses will take uh, this staff. Remember, when God had called Moses, he had said, Moses, what's in your hand? And it was this wooden staff. By the way, you're going to notice if you're reading this narrative carefully that it's not so much the staff itself that's magical. In fact, sometimes it's Moses' staff that's used. Sometimes it's Aaron's staff that's used. It's not the person who throws the staff. It's magical. Sometimes it'll be Aaron who throws the staff. Sometimes it'll be Moses that throws the staff. The important thing is what God does with the staff to invite people into what he's doing. And so here it's actually Aaron and his staff being thrown down on the ground. And what happens? Turns into a snake. Wow. Now, that is impressive. That is a wonder. And so I'm thinking the Pharaoh's going, this is, this is interesting. Never seen this before. Uh, maybe this guy does have something interesting to, you know, push back the next appointment a few minutes. Uh, and except he wants to just test this hypothesis that uh, there's something unique about his God because of the miracle he performs. And he calls out his wise men. Bring the sorcerers, bring the magicians. And they each, as it turns out, have their own staffs. They have their own rods, and they take theirs, and they throw them down on the ground, and they turn into snakes also. Now, don't you think that's interesting? I mean, how often would you ask God, God, would you, would you show me something that, convinces me that you're there? Would you give me some kind of a sign that just reassures my, my faith, that swages my doubt? And, and, and Pharaoh's asked something similar, and God has given it to him, except um, these guys come along, and we don't really know how they do it. Is this a parlor trick? Is this real magic? Is this something demonic? We don't know. And I think that's important, because Pharaoh doesn't know. We're in a very similar situation in relation to the scene that Pharaoh is. I don't really know how... Aaron did it. Now, I don't really know how this Egyptian did it, but I've got to make a decision. It's kind of like, you know, first I didn't believe this guy at all. And then, you know, I went, whoa, I really believed him. You know, and then all of a sudden, then my guys came out and I went back to, I'm sort of at 50-50 now. There's kind of authenticating evidence for belief and for unbelief. And I, I need to do something with my doubt. I've got to... Reduce the margin. And so the story continues. And the story leads into a sequence, as you know, of ten plagues. And we'll look at the tenth plague next week. But these nine plagues begin to escalate. And they are wonderful indeed, but they are horrible at the same time. And these plagues, by the way, will be initiated seven times by one of these staffs. This piece of wood will be extended out or struck on something. The first two plagues will be imitated by the magicians of the Pharaoh, the Nile and the frogs. They'll do something similar. Five times, Pharaoh will sit back and he goes, wow, that is really, that one was really impressive. And he goes, I, I, I think it's enough for me to change my mind. He relents. 
And then he gets right up to the brink and he can't do it. There's something inside of him that says, you know, I, I, I think I, I just need a little bit more before I'm sure. There's just not quite enough. I mean, I'm getting real close to certainty here, but there's still a margin of doubt. And, and as long as there's a margin of doubt, I've got to keep seeking more truth. I, I need to know before I act. And you're wondering, what, what, what is this with Pharaoh? It's, it's remarkable, the lives that are being torn apart by his indecision. He's yeah. kind of like, he's just, think you, sir, may have another kind of thing. You know, then he continues to make the same decision, which is nothing, not to act, to sit there and insist upon more, to, mitig- to demand that his doubts be mitigated. For me, I think the problem isn't too much doubt, but maybe not enough doubt, or maybe not enough space in his life for doubt. Pharaoh doesn't have a constructive place in his life for the reality of doubt. Unless he has certainty, he will not act. Pharaoh hardens his heart. These words, hardening of heart, occur 20 times in this narrative. Did you know this? Ten times Pharaoh is the one who's doing the action or his heart. In other words, Pharaoh is the one who's hardening his own heart. We think, oh, he's kind of collateral damage. You know, God hardens his heart, you know, and Pharaoh gets the process started. God doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart, the other ten instances, until after the sixth plague. No, he hardens it himself, which means he, he, he resists God's gracious action in his life. He knows enough to act, but he withholds that action until he knows more. You know what Pharaoh is doing? He's turning his doubt into a god. He is worshiping not the true God. He is worshiping his doubt. And I do the same thing. I say to God, I I can only believe if. I wouldn't have believed unless. I I can't believe unless I I understand this. Uh, Unless I understand you. Unless I know more. How is it that I think I could ever understand what an all-knowing God understands? If I knew everything that God knew, I would be God. Or he would be utterly unworthy of my worship. Doubt is a necessity when we worship a supreme God. The God who says, I am who I am. The call from the staff is not to know more truth. The call at the end of the staff is to take what you know and put it into action. That's the way to go. And that's the reaction of Moses. Let me do a little contrast here. You know, the difference between Pharaoh and Moses is not their knowledge. It's not the set of, their, uh, of the things that they know. I, I actually think they probably share a similar set uh, of things that they know. Because I think that Moses has communicated to Pharaoh the little stuff that he knows. I mean, actually, these two guys... Steep in the same waters. Egypt. Remember, Moses is a Hebrew, but Moses was raised in the Pharaoh's court. He knows what the Pharaoh knows, and he doesn't know what the Pharaoh doesn't know. Do you remember um, 
the, the expression Stockholm Syndrome, immediately what comes to my mind when I hear that phrase is uh, word association. Patty Hearst, I heard it. 1974, I think. Patty Hearst by her swimming pool in Berkeley, California. And I grew up in Northern California across the bay. I'm 11 years old. And there are these vivid images. You know, the, She's been kidnapped. This is the daughter of William Randolph Hearst. She's been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, SLA, uh, a, 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 a radical political group that's running around uh, killing and, um, and robbing. And in the news, all of a sudden, here's another attack of the SLA. And who is that? Patty Hearst has joined her kidnappers in their cause. It's called the Stockholm Syndrome. It was actually her defense when they, when they caught her. The idea is that those who are in captivity begin to take on the values of their captors. There's a kind of a strange empathy that happens, and, and they, they become sort of recharacterized. Now, I don't know why we wouldn't believe that Moses uh, and all of the Israelites in Egypt experienced the same kind of recharacterization. Frankly, I have no reason to believe why any of us hasn't experienced the same kind of recharacterization by the things that enslave us. And it's interesting that as these nine plagues come, you may have heard that each of them is, is a kind of attack against one of the gods of Egypt. They're being deconstructed systematically, one by one. You think this god is supreme? Let me show you who is. I think that Moses is watching, wow. It's like you're peeling back reality. In everything that I thought was really powerful, really important, everything that I thought dictated the terms of my life means nothing besides this great God. Moses and Pharaoh, they know the same thing. Moses has shared with Pharaoh everything he knows. You know, there's this God. He wants you to know him. He wants you to bless you. Just as, just as 400 years ago, that other Pharaoh was blessed by Joseph and could be your case as well. And, and Moses has the same degree, I think, of doubt that Pharaoh has. I would even suggest to you that the way I look at Pharaoh and Moses, if I were in Moses' shoes, I would have more doubt than Pharaoh. Why? Moses born in genocide? Moses separated from his mother at an early age? Moses born to a people who were slaves, oppressed, dying, the brutality that he has witnessed. I don't know. You tell me. That might make belief a little challenging. But when God reveals himself, as we discussed last week, at the burning bush, Moses knows all that he needs to know in order to do what God is calling him to do, which is take a step. See, to me, that's the significance of a staff. It was not a, a rare piece of furniture, a staff, a walking stick. It was common. We shouldn't be surprised that all these Egyptians have them handy for the snake trick. Uh, men and women carried staff. Wherever you go. It's, but the implication of a staff is you're going somewhere. You're going on a journey. You're going out to take a walk. And so when 
Moses stands at the burning bush hearing God's call. He doesn't need more information about God. He needs an invitation to take what he does know and step into it, to journey into it and walk uh, through it. That's what a staff's for. It's for an empowered uh, journey. Uh, this weekend, I watched The Matrix. I don't know if you remember The Matrix uh, a long time ago. There's no spoiler alert that's needed, but there's interesting. The Matrix, there, there are kind of two critical junctures, it seems to me, in the story. So the Matrix is a story about um, the future, science fiction. All the humans have been enslaved, and what they think is reality, what you and I perceive to be reality, turns out really to be a computer program called The Matrix. And the main character is named Neo. And the storyline revolves around whether Neo is the liberator, maybe the Moses or the Jesus figure in the story. And there are two moments, I, I think, uh, significant knowledge for Neo. The first moment is in a, a drawing room and, um, and the, kind of the John the Baptist figure holds out two hands. He says, you take the blue pill... And you go back to your dream state and remember none of this. You take the red pill and you go down the rabbit hole into reality. And he says, all I'm promising you is the truth. He takes the red pill and he goes down into reality. And all of a sudden, just like the plagues uh, unmask the gods of Egypt, this computer program uh, is crashing down. And now Neo can see reality as horrible as it is in this case. There's nothing there but devastation. But that is not the crux of the story in The Matrix. It is not there that Neo discovers what his relationship to this reality is. That's not enough. That's knowing the truth. But there's something more poignant, more important for Neo, and that is, who am I in relation to this truth? And for that, he's going to need a guide. And the guide in this story uh, is a woman uh, by the name of Oracle. And so um, Morpheus, this John the Baptist figure, takes Neo to her apartment. and It's a kitchen in a tenement building, and outside the door, Neo and Morpheus have this fascinating interchange. Um, Neo says, and she knows what? Everything? And Morpheus smiles. She would never say, she would say, she knows enough is Morpheus's reply. Neo, and she's never wrong? Morpheus, try not to think of it in terms of right and wrong. She is a guide, Neo. She can help you to find the path. And in that room, the oracle does speak to Neo, but does, we find out later, not in fact give him right and wrong as categories to know. She gives him some words that will come back to his mind to help him to, in fact, know the truth about himself, that he is the one, that he is the liberator, and know what to do. Know in the moment of crisis how to act towards that end. That, it seems to me, is what a staff to invite is. That, it seems to me, what God is giving Moses and, frankly, Pharaoh, an invitation to take what you know and step into it. Again and again in these plagues, there is the, if you let my people go, if not, here comes the plague. 
There's a conditionality. There's an invitation to act that out of the hardness of heart, Pharaoh fails to be able to do. It's an empowered journey. God wants to take you on a journey. And he's prepared to invite you to the next step. And truth will break in as we take that step. So often in the miracles of Jesus, he asks people to take a step into their healing. You notice that? Take up your pallet and walk. And it's as he takes that step that he realizes he's been healed. To lepers, go show yourselves to the priest. And it's as they turn and go that they discover they've been healed. Go, your servant has been healed. And as he goes, he discovers the truth. See, Jesus says, if you follow me, I am the truth. And the truth will set you free. This is the comfort of the psalmist who says, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He's on a journey. Not always an easy journey. But he says, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. It's not what you know. You know enough. In the book of Acts, we read, Peter and John were uneducated and ordinary men. But what people observed was they were companions of Jesus, the risen one. They walked with Jesus. As Paul says, they kept in step with the Spirit. They're walking in newness of life, again, Paul. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The staff invites us to take the next step. Well, God wants to take you somewhere. He wants to take me somewhere. And faith is not just about what's true. It's about what we do with what's true. So what's the next step for you? My faith is that as I'm speaking, God is bringing to your mind an area of your life. Or that he will later on today as you reflect on your worship. There's something for you to step into. Oh, you don't have to know everything about Jesus Christ. But take what you know of Christ and look at your opportunities and see what's there. Maybe for you, it's the first step of faith. It's daring to say, this dangerous Savior is my Lord and I wish to follow him. I wish to claim his forgiveness in life. I wish to be filled by his spirit and led through my life that I might know the abundance he has for me. Maybe for you it's to look at a pattern in your life that just needs to break. And you need to say, you know, I'm not trying to become Mother Teresa here, but I am going to say no to this. and I'm going to take a step to make it harder for me. Maybe it's a step towards reconciliation. Being, claiming the freedom to forgive someone. It's just hard to forgive and to enter into a new relationship with them on the basis of God's promise to you and to them. 
I don't know what it is, but I know that each of us is being invited this morning. And I trust that God will reel it and make it plain. I want to close with a a paragraph from um, Karl Barth in his book, Dogmatics in Outline. It's his definition of faith. I believe means I trust. No more must I dream of trusting in myself. I no longer require to justify myself, to excuse myself, to attempt to save and preserve myself. Trust in any sort of gods has become frail and superfluous. These are the gods set up, honored, and worshipped by men in ancient and recent times, the authorities on whom man relies. No matter whether they have the form of ideas or of any sort of powers of destiny, no matter what they're called, faith delivers us from trust in such gods and therefore also from fear of them, from the disillusionments which they inevitably prepare for us again and again. We are given freedom to trust in him who deserves our trust. Freedom by holding to him who in distinction from all other authorities is and will remain faithful. To hold to God is to rely on the fact that God is there for me and to live in this certainty. This is the promise God gives us. I am there for you. But this promise at once means guidance too. I am not left to my waywardness and my own ideas, but I have his commandment to which I may hold in everything, in my entire earthly existence. Lord Jesus, we have your promise of grace and we do have your commandment that invites us to experience that grace by taking the next step. Come to me. Follow me. Go. All of these invitations call us forward out of those places where we have been stuck. Stuck in fear. Stuck in pride. Stuck in pain. So as you invite us forward, God, grant us by your spirit the perception to see the next step, just the next step, and the power to take it. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.